Why did you develop the six-stage plot structure? What, what was the impetus for that? Well, it, it's, I, I'm hesitant to say I developed it. It's what I detected when I watched movie after movie and read script after script after script uh, and looked at what consistently happens in those that are successful. Successful commercially and also successful artistically, at least as evidenced by awards and so on. But most of all, that are successful commercially. What is it that happens in movie after movie that Hollywood is producing that isn't happening in all those thousands of scripts that are getting rejected? And when I dug in and picked it apart, what I found was that there are consistently six stages to any successful story or any successful movie. I should pause here to say when I talk about, when I say any or always, you should translate that to me 90% of the time because I like to talk in absolutes and there's always going to be some exceptions and so on. But so often in a, a successful movie can bro be broken into these same six stages and those stages are created by the five key turning points and those turning points always occurred at the same point in the movie at the same percentage of the running time so when I started recognizing that it was happening that consistently then I figured people need to know about this so I began lecturing about it and I began incorporating it into my coaching and then I studied it more and developed it into what I call my particular approach to looking at the structure. Uh, but it's not that I was discerning things that are significantly different from the other structure that you'll hear. So if you talk to Chris Vogler about his hero's journey structure, or John Truby, or Bob McKee, or Sid Fields, or whoever it might be, it's not that we're all disagreeing with each other, it's just that as Chris said one time, we're all looking through different windows at the same thing. We're all looking at the same movies and the same stories and just looking from our point of view of how can we simplify this process by, by sort of reducing it down to something that would be very easy to consistently follow as you're writing scripts. Well, I know you have a chart, Michael, on uh, storymastery.com that's incredibly helpful and I guess we can have a link to it uh, below the video here. Yeah, um, I, I know right now I understand that on this video we're cutting to a picture of this chart, but also if you'd like your own to be able to download and you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about, underneath the video you'll see a link that goes to a page on my website and then you can get your own PDF and download that for free and then as you're listening to the rest of this you can follow along the chart if you want to. It's one that I develop mostly for my lecturing so when I'm talking to, to a group of participants they can sort of follow along with this you know this through line or this timeline of a movie as we look at each of these six stages. Can you give us an overview of the six stage plot structure? Just a quick synopsis. Sure. Uh, let me preface it by saying this is what it's sort of built on. I mean, my underlying philosophy of all storytelling, whether you're a novelist or screenwriter, movie maker, TV writer, whatever it might be, is that your primary goal as a storyteller must be to elicit emotion. You must create an emotional experience for the audience, if it's a movie or a play, or for the reader, if you're a screenwriter and you have to get get it read so you can get the movie made or if you're a novelist or whatever. So your primary goal has to be to create emotion and this is a way to 
accomplish that goal. These are the, this is sort of the foundation of how you create that emotional experience for the audience or for the reader. And so these six stages are the six stages you're going to take your hero through and also the audience through as we go from the beginning of the story to the end. So the first of the six stages, what constitutes the first 10% of the story is what I call the setup. That's simply where we introduce the hero, you create an emotional connection to that character, you show her living her everyday life. Then there's a turning point, the opportunity, something new happens, that takes us into the second stage. That's the next 15% of the movie or the script. Uh, by the way, the percentages, if novelists are watching this, are a little more fluid. You don't have to stick quite as closely, but in scripts, there are one or two pages on either side of these percentages pretty, pretty consistently. So the second stage, the second 15% of the movie, is what I call a new situation. Your hero has now been presented with some event that takes them somewhere new. It might be geographically new or just some new circumstance where they have to figure out what's going on. Then something happens at the one quarter mark, at the end of act one, that is going to move the character towards a specific visible goal. They are going to then declare and begin pursuing a specific finish line that they want to reach by the end of the story. My term for that is the outer motivation for the character because it's outwardly visible and it's their desire. So it might be to stop a serial killer, it might be to win the love of the love interest in the movie, whatever. Now they begin pursuing that, so they go into act two, and the first half of act two is stage three. That's progress. They formulate a plan and the plan seems to work. And the obstacles start getting bigger and bigger until finally at the midpoint of that story, they're going to make a bigger commitment to the goal. Up to that point, they sort of have one foot in, one foot out. Now they're gonna reach what I call the point of no return. Something's gonna happen that demands of them that they sort of put both feet in. So they're gonna devote everything they can now to achieving the goal. They can't back up, they, they burn their bridges behind them, so to speak. So that moves them into stage four, which is complications and higher stakes. Because the further into the story the character goes, the more is at stake, because it, the goal becomes more and more important to them, but also the harder it is to achieve the goal. The outside world is gonna start closing in. The bad guy's gonna discover that the hero is after him, or whatever it might be. So it gets tougher and tougher and tougher, until at the three-quarter mark, right at the end of Act Two, the hero is going to suffer or encounter a major setback. Something's gonna happen that destroys seemingly any hope of achieving the goal. Uh, the plan is out the window, the worst possible thing that could happen happens, and so in response to that, the hero will do two things. First, the hero is gonna retreat and try and go back to the life they were living at the beginning and give up on the goal. But that doesn't work. They're not satisfied, they're not fulfilled, or they just can't give up because somebody's life is at stake or whatever. So then they make one last all or nothing, do or die final push. And that's stage five, which is the final push. It's putting everything on the line, giving every ounce of courage and energy they have until they reach the final turning point, the fifth turning point, and that's the climax. That's where everything gets resolved. That's where the hero faces the villain for the last time, or the hero wins the love of the love interest and, and they decide they're gonna live happily ever after, or whatever that climax might be. And then the sixth stage is 
what I call the aftermath, because we need to see the new life that this hero, that this character is going to live having completed this journey. And that's pretty much it. It's, it's like a before and after picture, starting out in an everyday life, going through this journey to accomplish this goal, and then in the end, seeing how their life has been transformed because they took this journey. I know you've talked about the Heroes 2 journey before. You've worked with Chris Vogler on that. Now, what are some of the other things you've done with Character Arc? Well, when I talk about the Heroes 2 journeys, that you're referring to a seminar Chris Vogler and I gave some years ago, and we created a video of it that is now on streaming video and so on that's available to people. And the reason I gave it that title is because in a story that goes into any kind of depth with the character, the hero is actually going to take two journeys, so to speak. One is the one I just described. It's a journey of accomplishment. It's, it's a journey where the hero, and I should define, by hero I simply mean the protagonist. I'm, I'm talking about a man, woman, boy, girl, android, anthropomorphic animal, if we're talking about Zootopia, let's say. But whoever that main character is, that, my definition is the hero. A hero is not someone, by the way, is, who is heroic. It's someone who has the potential to become heroic, and the movie's going to be about do they or don't they fulfill that potential. But at the start, it's an everyday person. But they have this visible finish line. That's the journey of accomplishment. Are they going to stop the alien invasion? Are they going to stop the serial killer? Are they going to escape? Uh, there's a movie that is one of my favorite movies this year uh, from New Zealand called uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. And that's about a kid and his foster father who have to go on the run because of a series of circumstances and we're rooting for them to get away from the evil social worker and the cops who are coming after them and so on. It's funny and it's touching and so on, but it's in, but their goal is to get away from the bad people, to escape. Or it could be to win a competition. But whatever that goal is, when you hear what it is, we can envision it. It's visible. So that's why it's like I say, the outer motivation is the outer journey of accomplishment. But underneath that, a hero in many movies, in many novels, is going to take another journey, what I call the inner journey for the hero. And whereas with the outer journey, the obstacles and the conflict come from the outside world, either forces of nature or other characters, on the inner journey, the conflict is going to come from within the character. So this is a journey of transformation. It's actually a journey from living in fear to living courageously. Now, the way that works, in essence, is if you're creating an inner journey for your hero, you need to ask yourself, first of all, what was this character's wound? How was this character hurt in the past in some way? What was this painful experience in the past that they think they've dealt with? They think they've put it behind them, but they haven't really because it's still affecting how they behave. So let's take one of my favorite examples of this is Goodwill Hunting. So in Good Will Hunting, Will Hunting, we discover through the course of that movie, was beaten by his father on an almost daily basis. He took a belt to him. He was abused. So that was so painful that it has stayed with him, and it's affecting how he's now behaving. Because when we are wounded like that, when, when we have that sort of deeply painful experience, we're going to formulate a belief about what caused that 
about how the world works, about why that could have happened. So Will Hunting's belief is, I must have deserved it. Typical belief that comes up for kids who are abused in childhood, in real life as well. Okay, or if you take a movie like uh, uh, Gravity, where her wound is her daughter has died and now she's just sort of floating out into space, disconnected from everything, just not able to move forward with her life because her belief is, all I have left is the memory of my daughter. I just have to cling to that. Anything to move forward in life is going to be too painful and too scary and I can't risk letting go of that memory at all. So she's just stuck in that place. So those beliefs that grow out of those, those, those wounding experiences lead to specific fears. So she's afraid of living her life. Will Hunting is afraid of letting anybody see who he truly is. And then out of that uh, fear that grows out of the belief that comes from this wound from the past, in real life and in stories, we will all create what I call an identity. We create a persona, to use the Jungian term. We create a false self that we will present to the world. In other words, we're so afraid deep down on an unconscious level that we will armor up with something, some way of presenting ourselves to the world that doesn't let the world see the truth of who we are, that, that keeps us from living, a, risking living our truth. So Will Hunting works as a custodian, even though he's smarter than all the, all the professors at MIT. And in Gravity, she becomes a, a, a person who is weightless. She gets this job in outer space because it's as far literally as she can get from back Earth, where, so to speak, the gravity of all that pain is just weighing her down too much. And these are the people we meet at the, at the beginning. It's the key is to figure out what is this identity for the character? Because then, if you go back to those six stages, in stage one of, that, of, of the uh, outer journey, when we meet the character, on the outer journey level, it's introducing us to the life they live. It's creating empathy with that character by getting us to sympathize with them or, feel to, or worry about them or because they're a very kind, good-hearted person. But on the inner journey level, we are getting a picture of what this identity is. This character is living fully in her identity. In other words, when you're creating a screenplay, one of the things you want to do in introducing your, your hero at the beginning is show how they are stuck in some way. If you think of the beginning of both Goodwill Hunting and, and Gravity, those characters are really kind of frozen in place. They're not going anywhere. Their life is unfulfilled. They're doing things, they're moving around, but it's not a fulfilling existence. So we meet Will Hunting getting in fights and you know getting drunk and so on, and he would claim his life was fine, but to us there's something missing here. And then something's going to happen. An opportunity will occur. They'll move into stage two to figure out how am I going to deal with this new situation? And they formulate a goal. That outer motivation is the goal that's going to take us all the way to the climax of the story. But on the inner journey level, here's where it gets fun and exciting, but tricky and bad for the character. Because the rule is whatever their goal, they can't achieve that goal unless they're willing to step out of that identity and drop that facade, drop that persona, which is the most terrifying thing they can imagine. 
So you're giving your character a horrible choice. You're saying to them, you can have what you want and you can be fulfilled, but you're gonna be terrified. You're gonna be scared to death because you are gonna drop the armor you've been wearing for most of your life. Or you can keep the armor on, you won't get what you want, and you're gonna be stuck in an unfulfilled life for the, rest, for the rest of time. And that tug of war between being safe but unfulfilled and being terrified but, but achieving the goal and transforming, that tug of war between those two things is the inner conflict. That's what inner conflict is. That's what that term means for a character. And so for the rest of the story, the inner journey is going to be their gradual transformation from living in their identity to what I call living in their essence, living their truth and finding that necessary courage. While on the outer journey level, it's them getting closer and closer and facing greater and greater obstacles as they move toward the climax to achieve that goal. Now that you've explained the six stages and we've already talked about stage one, the setup, can you also talk about uh, what happens in stage two, which is still in act one? Yeah. Um, so as I said, at about the 10% point of the story, something that's never happened to the hero before is going to happen. That's the opportunity. It can be something good, uh, meeting the person of their dreams, if it's a romantic comedy, let's say. It can be something terrible, like uh, the first body in a serial killer movie is discovered, or the spaceship that the aliens are landing on Earth in shows up. Whether it's good or bad, though, it's going to be something that forces the hero into stage two, a new situation. And in this stage, the primary goal of the character is to figure out what's going on. I've entered this new world. Sometimes in movies, it's even a change of geography. To go back to quite an old movie now, Thelma and Louise, it's when they leave town and go off to spend the weekend in, at some guy's cabin or something like that um, in uh, The Firm. It's when he takes the job with Bandini Lambert and Law. Locke and he and his wife head to Memphis. It could be geographical change, it might not be, but something, they're in a new situation and they have to figure out, what am I doing here? What are the rules of this world I'm entered? What is expected of me? Or how am I gonna deal with the discovery of that body? Or what am I gonna do about this, this, um, this uh, person I just met. Um, a movie that I really enjoyed a lot this year is Eye in the Sky. And we meet our hero, Helen Mirren, you know, waking up and we see her living her everyday life. We see that she's in the military and so on. She gets a call and when she gets to the base or whatever it is, she discovers that they have found uh, or they have confirmed that a group of terrorists, particularly these two Americans, have shown up and she's been dogging after them. So she's got to figure out, okay, how are we going to go about following them or capturing them once they're all together? And she's trying to figure out, what do I do? Now, on the inner journey level, in stage one, we see the character living fully in his identity. Okay, like I mentioned, Will Hunting and Goodwill Hunting. Or if you take a character like Hitch, who is also had his heart broken, so he's shut down and he'll help, help other people fall in love, but he doesn't believe in love for himself. He's stuck. 
in stage two, the character is still in his identity, still fully protected, but the character would get a glimpse of what living fully, living in his essence might be like. So that's in Hitch when he first meets um, Albert Brenneman, the Kevin James character, who for all his schlubby uh, personality, is way more courageous and way more understanding of the value of falling in love than Hitch is. So he gets just a look at what that might be like. He doesn't really register, but we recognize, okay, this is what this person needs to learn. We recognize early on in the story, this is the journey this character needs to go on on the inside. And then at the end of stage two comes what I call the change of plans. Another key turning point, another thing happens that has never happened before. And that's going to move the character from figuring out what's going on to formulating a goal, that visible goal, and taking the first steps to achieve it. So when that happens, let's go back to Eye in the Sky. What happens there is they discover that these terrorists have moved to a different location. The location they can't go in and capture the terrorists because it will create you know, chaos outside. The only way they can stop them is to use a drone, fire a missile, and bomb them. Just you know, kill them, blow them into oblivion. So now the outer motivation for Helen Mirren becomes she wants to use a, use a missile on a drone to kill the terrorists in this building. And the rest of the movie will be her pursuit of that goal and all of the obstacles she will encounter in trying to get there, all of the conflict. And I should mention this, probably should have mentioned it earlier in the interview, but I'll say it now. I began this by saying the primary goal of any storyteller is to elicit emotion. One thing that's critical to understand is emotion grows out of conflict not desire. So the more you can build up the obstacles the characters have to face, the more emotionally involving the story will be. Why is that? Is that because of uh, identification? Because we all kind of relate it back to something that's happened to us, and if do we see someone struggling even more than we are, then it becomes more interesting, or it holds our attention? Yeah, partly it's that. I, I mean, the, the why exactly conflict locks us in emotionally, it's, I believe, actually because our brains are wired for that. Going all the way back to evolution because we had to be alert to, when we were cavemen or wherever we evolved from, then we had to be alert to danger. So emotion is always going to be heightened when there's a moment of some obstacle or conflict or danger. And that has gotten so ingrained into our brains that it's spilled over and it's true for stories and narrative as well. So it's almost a visceral biological reaction to conflict, but that's why people go to the movies, that's why they read novels, that's why they go to plays or watch television, so they can have an emotional experience. So that means we go to see conflict. Desire is just there to move the story forward, but it's the obstacles that are going to grab us and hold us in. So when it comes to empathy, you notice that the things I mentioned that could create empathy, let's say sympathy, that's conflict that the character has experienced in the past. We feel sorry for them because they're poor or they had a tough childhood or we find out their spouse has just died as in Sleepless in Seattle or whatever. 
okay? Or another way is you put a character in jeopardy. That's conflict that's coming in the future, that they're in danger of getting on the Titanic, which is gonna sink, or they're in danger of encountering the villain that was introduced before they were in the movie, or whatever it might be. Or, or I said, if a character is likable, good-hearted, generous, that's how they help others deal with conflict. So the empathy, the emotional connection between hero and, or between audience and hero, or reader and hero, also grows out of the conflict that they are subjected to, or were subjected to, or will be, so that the reader recognizes that, and that gets them more emotionally involved in the hero. Well, Michael, you've talked about the entire six-stage plot structure. You've touched on each point briefly, and I know we went into depth on stage one and stage two. Can we go further into depth on stage three, which is progress? of the character? Sure. Um, once the character has formulated their outer motivation, that necessary visible goal that's going to lead us all the way to the climax, stage three is where they start pursuing it. They formulate a plan and they start going after that goal. And that's where they start encountering more and more of the conflict, more and more of the obstacles standing in their way. Either obstacles that are coming from the outside world, such as forces of nature, if it's, uh, um, say, an avalanche in a movie like that, or a fire, or a disease, or, or an alien invasion, which is kind of like a force of nature, or from other characters. If it's a thriller and it's a bad guy, you know, coming after our hero, or something like that. But those obstacles are going to start appearing. They're going to have to avoid them or overcome them or whatever, but their plan seems to be working well. That's why I call it progress. But on the inner journey level, something else happens that's critical. Because remember I talked about a character's identity, this false persona that they wear to keep them emotionally safe, to keep them from taking too much emotional risk and where they can hide the thing that frightens them most. Well, because the rule is they can't achieve the visible goal without stepping into their essence and out of that persona, they're going to have to drop the armor in order to make progress toward that goal. The problem with dropping the armor is it's terrifying emotionally. So uh, take, for example, in Hitch, as he starts falling for the Ava Mendez character, it's very scary for him because his armor is, I don't really fall in love myself, that's not for me, I'm just a one night stand kind of guy, I help other guys fall in love. So the more vulnerable he needs to get in order to win her love, the scarier it's going to be for him. So what will happen in this stage is the hero will vacillate back and forth between identity and essence. They'll open up and take courageous steps toward their goal, but then they will, in return, retreat because it'll get too scary emotionally, especially if you're dealing with the inner journey and it's like a love story, a romantic comedy, or something where there really needs to be a deep transformation. Um, if you take Goodwill Hunting as an example, his goal is to win the love of Skylar. Goodwill Hunting is basically strictly a love story. That's really what it is. Is he going to live, win the love of Minnie Driver, the Minnie Driver character? Well, as he starts dating her, they start getting close. He gets scared and then he backs off. 
And when he's talking to Sean, the Robin Williams character, Sean at one point says, well, what about that girl you were dating? And he said, oh, no, you know how it is to go on a second date, you know, then they don't really live up to what you expected them to be. And then Sean in return says, maybe what you're afraid of is you won't live up to what she expects you to be. Because what Sean is there for is to keep pointing out the emotional fear that Will Hunting carries around because of his abused, abused path. So we see as he's dating Skylar, he gets closer to her and then he doesn't talk to her and he'll get closer and then they'll manufacture an argument and it's back and forth, back and forth, vacillating between identity and essence. So hobbling along in that way, the character is getting closer and closer until the character, the hero reaches the point of no return. That's the third key turning point, and that's the midpoint of the movie. That, that means that something happens at that moment that is going to demand of the character or is going to lead the hero to make a much bigger commitment to the goal. In love stories or romantic comedies, it is almost always the point where the character goes to bed with the love interest for the first time, kisses for the first time, as in Wedding Crashers, um, declares I love you for the first time, um, maybe even has the first official date. In Hitch, it's interesting because they actually spend the night together for the first time, even though there's no sex involved, but it's when the two of them open up more than they ever have about their past and about what their emotional fears are, and they get closer. And now, after crossing that point of no return, the hero moves into stage four, what I call complications and higher stakes. And what happens there on the outer journey level is the obstacles are gonna get bigger and bigger. It's almost like God is saying, or the writer who is God over these characters is saying, okay, I think it's great you made this full commitment to your goal, now let's put it to the test. And so the obstacles will start coming faster, closer together, get bigger and bigger, and this is key for someone writing a screenplay. What needs to happen is the outside world needs to start closing in on your hero. Uh, so the rival boyfriend might show up. Or if it's a thriller, it might be that the midpoint is when the villain discovers that the hero is on to him and now he's gonna, the pursuer, the pursuit is gonna become the pursuer and he'll start coming after the hero and she'll be in danger because she real, he realizes she is coming after him. So the outside world is going to clo come closing in. In Titanic, the outside world is the iceberg and the sinking ship. It's, that's the test she's up against. Can she still maintain her love for Jack and, and her journey toward living a fully passionate life in the face of the ship sinking and almost certain death? So it's going to get tougher and tougher and tougher for that character until your hero reaches the, the fourth key turning point the three-quarter mark of your script or your movie, the end of Act Two, what I call the major setback, which is when everything basically goes to shit. Turning point four, which is at three-quarters of the movie, so we're, we're three-quarters in, the major setback. Talk about that. Yeah. The hero of the story has been pursuing this visible goal from the beginning of Act Two. Okay, once they have this finish line that they much must cross, that your audience and your reader is rooting for them to achieve by the end of the story. All the way th through, as they pursued this, the obstacles have been getting bigger and bigger. Finally, your hero, 
at the three-quarter mark if it's a screenplay or somewhere around that if it's a novel is going to encounter an obstacle they can't overcome. It's going to be something that defeats them and it must seem to your readers or to your audience like all is lost. Like now, oh my God, there's no way they're going to succeed at achieving this goal. And the hero gives up because their plan is out the window and they have no idea how they're going to achieve the goal now. So um, if you take a movie like uh, uh, Titanic, what happens is the ship is sinking and finally it gets so scary and the obstacles are so great when Cal, her jerk of a boyfriend, comes along and says, I found a lifeboat for you, she gets on the lifeboat even though she knows it means leaving Jack and we all realize if she leaves Jack, the Leo DiCaprio character on the ship and she gets on the lifeboat, all is going to be lost. Okay, so that's the major setback there. Or um, it's uh, in a recent movie, a, a really sort of tight thriller called Don't, Don't Breathe that came out a few weeks ago before this video was made. They're, it's a very simple thing. They're trying to rob a blind guy of some money and the blind guy knows they're in his house and have locked him inside. So it's just, it's kind of a haunted house movie, but no ghosts. It's just a very intense, closed in, claustrophobic thriller. And at, I believe, if I remember correctly, what happens at the major setback is one of the main characters gets killed by the blind guy and now there's only one person left and she has to somehow escape. So it seems like there's no way of getting out of this situation. Okay? When that happens, the hero is going to retreat. They're not only going to try and go back to where they were living at the setup, but they're also on the inner journey level going to retreat into their identity. They're going to go back into that protective persona where they were emotionally shut down at the beginning of the story. They're saying to themselves, I knew this was stupid. I knew I never should have gone for this. I shouldn't have opened up. I shouldn't have tried to find true love. I shouldn't have tried to take this emotional risk. You see what happens. If you're writing a love story or romantic comedy, the two lovers must break up at this point. You have to split them apart and the hero will go back and say, I'm never going to fall in love again. Hitch is a good example of that because the truth comes out. She finds out he's really the date doctor. He assumes, she assumes, the Eva Mendez character assumes that Will Smith's character has been lying to her. They break up and he gives up. He says, to Albert, I got nothing. It's stupid to fall in love. You can get past it. It's, I'm not going to jump out of a plane without a parachute. And so the character will retreat back into that safe emotional place, but it's not a fulfilling place. That's the rule. They can't have what they want and they can't live a fulfilled, evolved existence if they stay in that identity. And once we have experienced our essence, like these characters have as they move closer to the goal, going back fully into our identity doesn't really cut it anymore because we can't pretend like that's who we truly are. We've actually had the experience in real life and in story form of living a more fulfilled existence. So after that retreat, the hero is going to realize, doesn't matter what it costs, I've got to keep going after what I want. I've got to be that courageous. And then they go into what I call the final push. And that's stage five of the six stages where they put everything on the line in order to achieve that outer motivation. They're either going to win or they're going to die trying. 
And the climax is just the scene which must resolve that question. They either win or they lose. You can't be ambiguous about it. If they win, it means they're fully in their essence. If they aren't fully in their essence, they must lose. And then the final stage is simply what I call the aftermath. It's the after picture, the before and after picture the story creates. The before picture was a hero fully in his identity. The after picture is a hero fully in his or her essence, reaping the rewards of having found the courage to complete that arc. Let's talk about wounds and fears of our main character. How severe should they be? If they're too extreme, will it scare the viewer away? Um, well, first of all, keep in mind that the wound is always something that occurs before the story actually begins. It's in the character's backstory. Sure. So rarely in a movie will we actually see that wound. The only reason we would see it is if there's either a prologue that shows the wound. So if you take a movie like um, Twister, where we see her father swept away by a tornado, and then we flash forward to where she's a grown-up, but we know that is a wounding experience that's going to affect her, that's affecting her now. Or it might be in a flashback, uh, Hitch is a good example of that. I'm not really that fond of flashbacks as a rule, especially to reveal wounds, but in that movie it works, I think, because it's such a funny flashback as well as touching, and it establishes such an important quality for the character of Hitch, because we see when he was in college, he had his heart broken, and that's when he acquired the belief, if I fall in love with anybody, it's gonna to lead to a broken heart, which leads to his identity, which is, I'll help everybody else fall in love, but I don't do that, that's not for me. So, I think it's more palatable, if you will. I don't think you're gonna scare anybody away with it, because oftentimes we won't see it. Also, keep in mind, you're not gonna announce the wound in most movies at the beginning. Sometimes we're aware, like in Sleepless in Seattle, the opening shot is a man holding his son's hand over a grave saying, mommy died. That's pretty direct. But oftentimes we don't learn what that wound is until well into the story. It's at least halfway through Goodwill Hunting before we find out about the abuse that he suffered when he was a child or find out the details about his father taking a belt to him. Um, in gravity, it doesn't open by saying, I'm sorry about your daughter dying. It comes out gradually after the opportunity when the space debris comes through and destroys this, the ship and so on. And then Ryan is talking to the George Clooney character and revealing what it was that happened back on Earth that led to her daughter dying and why she's carrying that around. So it's not gonna be abrupt. It's not gonna be right at the top of the story most of the time. Uh, and last of all, one of the most effective ways, I think, to reveal the wound is through dialogue. It's oftentimes more powerful to hear about a wound that the character has suffered than it would be to actually watch it on the screen. A great example of this is the movie um, um, L.A. Confidential. 
Uh, by the way, I just read Curtis Hansen, who co-wrote and directed the movie, just passed away yesterday. So oh. the, this is the day we're filming this thing, and that was so sad because I think it's just one of the great American movies and one of the great American screenplays. But the wound for Bud White, the Russell Crowe character, is when he was a child, he watched his father beat his mother to death with a tire iron while he was chained to the bed, and then he was left there with the body for two days. That would be such an unbelievable gruesome experience to watch on the screen but it's such a beautiful moment when he finally reveals it because it's right after the midpoint he's just made love to Lynn the uh, Kim Basinger character and it shows how they have gotten closer they are connected more at this level of essence because finally he's opening up about exactly what the pain is that he's been carrying around so long and what led to him becoming kind of this brute cop who still does everything he can to rescue women so i don't think it's something to worry about in the way you said. I just think it's something to skillfully weave into the story so that we'll feel more affinity to the character and also so it will lead to the reason for the character's identity. You're saying that we don't have to show the wound or explain what happened, but at some point we do reveal it? Yes. Or, or is it never, are there some stories where we know they're wounded but it's never totally revealed what that wound is or how it happened? Yeah, there are movies where it's never clearly stated. Uh, Titanic is that way. It's very clear what her identity is and what her, her essence is. She longs to be passionate. She longs to live a fulfilled, passionate, adventuresome life, but she's stuck with this mother who interferes in her life and this rich guy who's really a jerk. And so it never says, well, when I was a child, this happened, or when I was an adolescent, this happened. We can infer some things. The inference I make is that probably she either had no father or the father abandoned them early on. That's why the mother is so intent that her daughter find a rich guy to take care of her. But it's never really stated fully. So you can go without revealing it as long as we get a clear idea of what the identity that has resulted for the hero is. The main thing though I think is you as the screenwriter or you as the novelist need to know what the wound was. You need to know your backstory for your hero well enough that you can say this is what wounded them in the past and this is why they're the way they are in the present. Hollywood films are built on three components, character, desire, and conflict. Yes, they are. Okay, so Hollywood films, any other types of films, art house films, I know we talked about briefly off camera, it's the same rules apply, but maybe just different uh, elements that the characters are. Yeah, in that case, there's nothing different at all, and we're not just talking about movies. That's the foundation of all story. Okay. Any story. You can talk about epic poem, you can talk about a myth, you can talk about a fairy tale, a children's book. They're all built on character, desire, and conflict. Every story that I can think of, almost without exception, if it's a narrative story that has a beginning, middle, and end, is going to be about a character who desperately wants something and something stands in their way. And you say the desire moves the story along, but actually what we resonate with is conflict. Yeah, I'm saying the conflict is what more, is more responsible for the emotion that is elicited. Because, um, let me give it as an example, the movie, uh, uh, well, let's say, let's, let me put it this way. Let's say I said to you, you want to go to a movie this weekend? And you said, well, what are we going to see? And I said, well, I heard about this movie. It's about a guy who wants to make a speech. So what do you think? 
Well, chances are, although I know you're into art house movies, you're probably going to say, yeah, what else is playing? Because watching a guy give a speech, you can do that on TV and be bored to tears anytime. But if I said it's a story about a guy who wants to give a speech and he happens to be um, a prince in Great Britain who has a horrid speech impediment, who was abused as a child, who has no desire for the throne but then has to become king when his brother abdicates, and the speech he wants to give is going to be the speech that leads his country into World War II. Now it's sounding not only intriguing, it sounds like it could be an Oscar winner, because all of those things I just said were all of the conflict he faces in trying to give the speech. So it's not giving the speech that makes that story exciting or emotional or appealing or commercial. It's the obstacles he had to come over, overcome to do that. Let's take desire. So in something like Fatal Attraction, which I know is an extreme version of desire, the desire is not really what's moving the story along. It's the conflict in terms of? No, no, it's the desire is moving it forward. But you have to pinpoint what, it, first of all, who's the hero of the movie? The hero is the Michael Douglas character, mm -hmm. okay? okay? And at the setup, we meet him and he's restless and not a very moral guy and sort of, you know, whatever. And then he meets as the opportunity, he meets um, um, Glenn Close, I don't remember the character's names, right. mm -hmm. and has an affair with her and starts doing that. So somewhere around the one quarter mark, I think he's already gone to bed with her, but then we see that she might be a little more possessive than he was anticipating. And gradually, the more her craziness and possessiveness and psychosis starts coming to the fore, the more he wants to get away from her mm -hmm. and, and finally stop her from terrorizing him and his family. So actually, his outer motivation is to stop the crazy woman he slept with from terrorizing or destroying his family. And if you realize the goal is to stop her, then his desire to do that pushes that story forward. Now, admittedly, it's her actions that he must react to that are, are moving things forward just as much. So he's reactive more than proactive in a way. But what we're rooting for is for him to get away from this crazy woman before everything goes kablooey. Because even though he made a big mistake, we still are rooting for him. Desire just means there's something the character wants. It isn't necessarily confined to sexual or romantic desire. That just happens to be in those two movies, there, were, there was this sort of illicit sexual, I don't know if it was really illicit in nine and a half weeks or how you'd categorize it. But the desire could, well, on a visible level, the desire could be to win a competition. In fact, if you look at at Hollywood movies, probably 90% of Hollywood movies are about characters who all want to do one of basically three or four things. And that is they either want to win a competition mm -hmm. or win the love of another character. So that encompasses all sports movies and all romantic comedies and love stories or, or romantic hyphenate movies. Right. Or they want to stop, like stop something bad from happening. That's all horror movies, most science fiction movies, uh, all thrillers, all murder mysteries, although Hollywood really doesn't do murder mysteries so much, but that's about stopping a killer from getting away with the murder. Or they want to escape uh, from some bad situation like um, Great Escape or, or Panic Room or Hunt for the Wilder People. 
or they want to uh, retrieve something. They want to go get something of value and own it, possess it at the end of the story. So that's all heist movies, it's kidnapping stories, rescue stories. We've got to go get this person and get them to safety. And if you look at the top box office movies for any given year, I bet probably 90 out of 100 are going to fall into one of those four categories of goal. Okay, so desire doesn't necessarily mean romantic interest. It could be conquering, a, you know, in, in the case of um, uh, the Helen Mirren movie that you mentioned earlier, wanting to find the terrorist. That conquer is, is the desire yeah. that moves it through, but the conflict is trying to find these terrorists who have moved throughout the, the area. Yeah, that's part of the conflict. Her goal, that's a stop movie. She wants to stop the terrorists from leaving the house where they can take, because they discover that they're... Uh, they're suicide bombers, or, or they're arming some suicide bombers. So they're going to go into some populous place and kill a lot of people, and they want, she wants to stop them. Part of the conflict is they've got to find them, they've got to make sure it's them, they've got to get the drone in position. But part of the conflict is what happens when an innocent bystander comes into the, um, the, the field where the collateral, collateral damage is going to be done. If there's an innocent person there, it starts a moral dilemma of, is one person's life worth risking the lives of a hundred to save? So then there become this moral conflict too. But they're all obstacles to her doing what she wants, which is stop the terrorists. Two people have asked you to review their work. And you see one has perfect structure, appropriate arcs, syntax, grammar, etc. And the other one is more rough around the edges, but it displays characters that are so real that the reader does not really care. First of all, I would love to have those two clients as a consultant because I could work with either one of them and, and sort of figure out, well, how can I help you pull up the other side that you're struggling with? It's very hard, and I couldn't say with any degree of accuracy, this one will succeed and this one will fail because there are two such critical elements. Um, on the one hand, I think the person who's mastered the craft, and in your words, has perfect structure, and assuming that they're structuring a really commercial idea, they're in a certain way probably further along, because then we just have to go deeper with those characters and start really getting into what is this identity essence tug of war, what is the wound, what is the fear, what is the persona that they've created and how does it relate to the goal. So the script is going to read better in that case. But there are some writers who just don't get that. They just don't really have an interest or a desire or they don't connect with this idea of inner fear and going into the layers of the character and so on. But there are a lot of successful movies that don't have an inner journey at all. Those are because your goal is to elicit emotion. And if the an emotion grows out of conflict, is the conflict is so great on the visible level you may not need the invisible inner journey level. So I don't see much character arc in any James Bond movie, and they've done pretty well over the last 50 years, 50 plus years now, or uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't see much of an arc for that character, or any number of other big fireworks, special effects, space battle, whatever it might be. Some of them have an arc for the character, some of them do not. Some of them try to, but it's, it's kind of just lesser, a lesser element. 
but the movies could be great because they're exciting and they're adventuresome and, and the characters are fun to watch. They just don't have these deeper layers, so that's fine. For the other writer, the one who really has a desire and an understanding of human nature, they have a real advantage at creating rich three-dimensional characters, but they have a lot of craft still to learn if they're nowhere near the first writer you mentioned. So in both cases, the writers need, have work to do, but the one who understands human nature but doesn't know craft yet probably has more work. More work, okay. Great, thank you. And if they do the work, they may end up being the best screenwriters. Because they're able because to then they'd be fully fully cognizant of all of it. Do you find the ones that maybe don't let's let's take the first one who's who's no structure perfect you know structure and and um, that possibly there's something in themselves that they're not addressing and so they're not able to have their characters go deeper or is that looking too far into it? Whereas the one that maybe does not know some of the structural points. Um, but, but is able to really create a rich character, is more in touch with themselves, their emotions, their own identity. Okay, the second character you just described, the one who understands character depth, I have no idea if they're more in touch with their own emotions. They just understand psychology. They understand the layers of, of courage and fear and so on. Whether they can apply it to themselves or not, I have no idea because lots of us can be good at recognizing things in other people and are blind to what's going on in ourselves. But I will say this, for the, for the person who struggles with that, part of the struggle might be that they don't want to look at the connection between themselves and what's going on in their story. When I coach people, one of the questions I often say if I'm not getting a clear picture of the characters or if I'm not really understanding them is I'll say to the writer, where are you in this story? And I'll say, I don't mean which character are you. I mean, how does this story reflect something that is important to you? How does it reflect something that you're afraid of, that you're resisting, or that has been important to you in the past or whatever? And that's a journey that's hard to take. That's an exploration that's hard to do. If they're willing to do it, we can start seeing that. Or sometimes, and I'm presumptuous enough of a guy that I'll mention it, but sometimes in looking at a story and working with someone, I can recognize things about them in the story that I've recognized in their work or in working with them that they haven't discovered. And I'll just point it out. I say, I will say, you know, do you see how this is the character who's really much more like you? Do you see how this character is really struggling with what you are? Or I will say, have you ever been in a situation like this? What was your response? Then why isn't your character responding something like that? So there are ways to get deeper and go into that level of understanding through the psychology of the writer herself or himself. But not all writers are going to be up for doing that. I have to get their permission to really want to explore that. If they are, then it can lead to some really good things in the script. What are some common mistakes that writers make in the first two stages of writing the screenplay, which compromises the first act and then subsequent acts? What, what are usually the first parts that end up compromising the entire work? Yeah, I would, I would go actually a little further with your question. I would okay. say if you have problems in the first two stages, you're, 
it's impossible for your script to work. I, I have this sort okay. of motto, and that is, if you're having story problems, all roads lead to the hero's outer motivation. Because one of the biggest issues, one of the most difficult things for writers to really embrace is, the, is this idea that at the very foundation of any story is a visible goal that the hero wants to cross at the end of the story. They'll get so caught up in the inner journey, in the depth or dimension of the character, or in the themes they want to deliver, or they'll just think the premise is good so they get lost in a thicket of events and plotting until finally they're just coming up with new ideas and adding idea after idea and it becomes so complicated and so confusing that there's no story there. If you think about it, most Hollywood movies in particular are based on very simple story ideas. Even if you take a story that you think is fairly complex, like um, Inception, okay? That seems pretty complicated. I had a little trouble grasping some of that, but it's very core, it's very simple. A group of people wants to penetrate a person's dreams down to a layer where they can change his behavior without him knowing it. And that's it. I was able to say that in what, five seconds and one sentence. And that everything is built on that goal. And if you have that kind of clear through line, and if when you say what that goal is, everybody gets the same image of what achieving that goal is, then you've laid a foundation that most scripts don't honestly have. And it's, it's odd because it sounds simple. It is simple, but it's not easy because I think for those of us who write, or for storytellers, we so want to get into character, we so want to get into deeper levels of meaning, we so want it to be original and different and complex and special that we lose sight of, first I've got to have this very simple through line. So that's the number one thing. The, one of the biggest problem in stages one and two is it doesn't lead to a clear, visible finish line that anyone can envision, whether they're reading the script or, or, or watching the movie, they know what they're rooting for. Second thing is not showing the everyday life of the character before they get into the story moving forward. We have to have a setup. It can be very brief or a character can be on the move, so to speak, action-wise. They can have just arrived in a town and we see them going or they're going to a meeting or going to meet with a hitman or whatever it might be. But nonetheless, it has to convey this is who this character has been for some time and it has to create empathy. Like Rambo. He arrives. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Brian so we'll find out what happened prior to that, but the big, the first big event that's going to happen to him doesn't happen on page one. We first have to get acquainted and identify or empathize with this character. And that empathy must occur immediately. We have to empathize before we start seeing what the flaws to the character are, before we start recognizing what this inner conflict is or what this identity is or what dark places they might go. First, we have to just connect with them emotionally. And the third thing I would say is jumping from the setup right to the outer motivation. In other words, I think because screenwriters are inundated with the idea that you got to grab the reader right away and you got to get things going and all your movies move fast and so on. <clears throat> all of that is true, but it doesn't mean you rush the story. 
What it means is you start building in conflict as soon as you can, but you don't rush the story. It's going to take all of act one to get your hero to the point where they really begin pursuing that visible finish line. And if you start at page 10 with them pursuing the goal, your, your script is going to die around page 70 because you can't sustain a single goal that long. So you've got to take the whole stage one and stage two just to build up, to create the opportunity in the new situation, to get them oriented, to build up to the point where they have the goal and then they take that first step. And that's what has to happen at 25%. Can you help us determine a stage versus a turning point? Yeah, uh, basically it's just a stage is a sequence of events in the story. It covers a span of time. A turning point is a single event that happens to the hero. So a stage would be we meet the hero, we see her living her everyday life, we, we maybe meet the villain in the piece, we uh, meet other characters, her best friend, something like that. Or in stage two, she arrives at this new job, if that's her new situation. We meet the boss, she has some problems, she has coworkers, she meets the guy who's gonna be the, the romance character or the love interest. Those are stages, they are sequences of events. But the opportunity is gonna be a single event that happens to her, such as in that example I just made up, the opportunity would be she gets the new job. Okay, or the change of plans would be um, she, is, she is told she can have a promotion if she can design a new house for a billionaire. And so her goal in the movie becomes to design a house for a billionaire. By the way, I'm making these up, that's why that would be a terrible movie, so don't, don't <laughs> I'm not giving anyone listening to this, don't take that as an example of a good idea you should pursue. I'm just, I shouldn't make stuff up, uh, you know, off the top of my head. Um, let's, take, let's take an example from a real movie, uh, one of my favorites this year, Jason Bourne. Okay, uh, stage one, we see him, he's down in Turkey, I think, or the border of Turkey. He earns money by going, getting into fights and knocking these brutish guys out. He's obviously unhappy. And, and we see that he's just sort of stuck in this identity of a guy who has no home and no connection and no real identity in the traditional sense. He doesn't really know who he is. Is he Jason Bourne or is he really the guy who became Jason Bourne or so on? So all of that is a sequence. It's a whole series of events. That's a stage. And we cut away from him during that stage and, and see the Julia Stiles character as she breaks into this facility that the CIA runs or NSA or whatever it is and she steals these things and we don't know why. That's a stage. It's a whole lot of scenes strung together. The opportunity is a single event. He's in this fight and he sees she shows up in his life and is coming to him and now he's in a new situation. What am I gonna do now that this woman from my past who knows the truth of who I am, who I apparently had an affair with once before I lost my memory and so on, what am I gonna do? And so now it's a new sequence of events. She tells him what's going on. They have to go on the run from a guy. She has to give him the, the uh, flash drive, etc. And we see new villains and we see what's going on at the NSA as they try and, try and stop him. So again, a stage is a sequence of events. A, a turning point is a, a single event that happens to the hero. Can you talk about how the outer journey and the inner journey are combined? 
within this six-plot structure? Yeah. I mean, they definitely intertwine. Again, as I said earlier, you can have a story that's all outer journey. It's just plot. It's the character doing whatever physically is needed to achieve that visible goal. And there's enough conflict from the visible obstacles from nature and other characters that we don't need to go deeper in the character. But if you choose as a writer to go to that inner journey level, to explore the inner conflict within the hero, to see the tug of war between identity and essence, between living a false persona and living a character's truth, and uh, living in a fearful state but protected state versus living courageously. If you want to explore that, then they'll intertwine because, as I said, the rule is the closer they get to achieving the goal, they, the more they have to be moving toward their essence. It's, it's called an arc because it arcs over the whole story. And every time their fear takes over, they have to lose ground, so to speak. It keeps them from achieving the goal. So in a love story, this is easy to see because if the characters are in conflict, the, the hero and what I call the romance character, the love interest, if they're arguing, it means one of them is in his or her identity and it's stopping them from getting more intimate. If they're both in their essence, they're gonna grow closer and become more intimate. That's why the midpoint, that point of no return, re represents a bigger commitment, is oftentimes the first time they make love because it's physical intimacy that matches the emotional intimacy they have from opening up and showing each other their essence, showing each other their truth. So that arc for the hero is gonna to correspond to the hero getting closer and closer to the outer motivation. But there's another cool way that they can intertwine and a good tool that you can use as a screenwriter or as a novelist or filmmaker of any kind, even an actor, because this will inform your performance, and that is to look at some other key characters in the story. One is a character I term the reflection. The reflection is my term for the sidekick, for the character who's most closely aligned with the hero. So it might be a best friend, it might be a co-worker, it might be a mentor like Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid, or if it's the new Karate Kid, Mr. Han, or Obi-Wan, or uh, uh, just anyone who is there to support the hero, who's aligned with the hero at the beginning of the story. So uh, in Gravity, for example, uh, Ryan, the Sandra Bullock character, is the hero of that movie, but is closely aligned with and supported by the George Clooney character. Now, on the visible journey level, on the plot level, that reflection character is the reflection because their job is to help the hero achieve her visible goal. So in Gravity, what's her visible goal? To get back to Earth. Who's the character who's going to help her do that more than anyone? It's George Clooney's character. I wish I could remember that character's name, but I don't, okay? But once you have that character functioning as a reflection on the outer journey, now you can see how you use them on the inner journey level. And on the inner journey level, the reflection is the character who reveals the hero's essence to the hero. Or another way to say it is, the reflection is the character who holds the hero's feet to the fire and any time they're retreating into their identity, 
The reflection will say, what are you doing? This isn't you. You should be going after that person or you can't give up. There are numerous moments in Gravity where the George Clooney character, first as a real person and then as a figment of her imagination, says, you don't want to give up. I know why you want to give up. It's terrible. It's terrifying. But if you can find the courage and you can put one foot in front of the other and keep living your life, that's the way you want to be. And that's a typical scene or situation for a reflection character. Donkey does that for Shrek. Uh, the Vince Vaughn character in Wedding Crashers does it for Owen Wilson. So Owen Wilson has retreated after they broke up into his identity and now he's crashing funerals as well as weddings. And Vince Vaughn goes and says, why are you doing this? You've got to go after her. She's going to get married. She's marrying the wrong guy. You love her. And so that reflection character can intertwine on the inner journey because they're sort of pushing the hero toward their essence. And the other character that also becomes a valuable tool, if you're writing a love story, which is a great genre, it's a great tool when you want to explore inner, the inner life of the character to add a love story to your plot, whatever the genre is. It's what I call the romance character, the love interest. Because on the visible goal level, if it's a love story, the hero's visible goal has to include winning the love of that other character. They want to end up in a committed relationship with that person. They may do it reluctantly, they may be blind to it at first, but eventually, by the midpoint anyway, they're going to declare their love in some way and they're going to actively pursue that person romantically. But on the inner journey level, the way that works is the, the love interest is the reward for the hero having found the courage to be in his essence. So again, you can't win true love. You can't, you can't win the love of another character if you're living a false life. You have to be in your essence. And so with love stories, the way it works is, if you're writing a love story, to avoid the mistake of having these two people be together just because you want them to be for no logical reason other than they're both good looking and they're the co-stars of the movie. If you wanted to really make logical sense and really have your audience respond to it emotionally, then the romance character is the character who sees beneath the hero's identity and they connect at the level of essence. And so anytime they're in conflict, their identity is coming into play. When they actually connect, they're at, they're at the level of essence. And nobody else that the hero has ever fallen for or is involved with or in love with at the beginning of the movie, none of them see the hero's essence. Only the true love can do that. And so now that level of plot is also intertwined with the inner journey as well. Can we talk about, though, a friend who then becomes an enemy or has been an enemy all along or vice versa, someone that we thought was an enemy, an opponent, but was actually more benevolent than we imagined during the beginning of the movie. Yeah, because I use these terms and this jargon I've created like hero, nemesis, romance, reflection. The nemesis is the villain, by the way, or the opponent. Um, because I use those terms, often that question will come up. Well, what if a character starts out as a reflection, a best friend, and turns out to actually be the killer and then become the nemesis? Um, I recommend that a writer not look at it that way. I recommend that you use the terms that you would apply at the end of Act One. How is, the, how is this character established at the beginning, in the beginning act of your script? 
So if this is the character who's the best friend who's aligned with the hero, then they remain the reflection throughout the movie. They just become a reflection who turns out to be a bad guy or a killer or a murderer or, or a spy or whatever it turns out that they are. And if a character starts out to be a friend, but then this is about the two of them falling in love and we know that's where it's headed, then it's the romance character from the get-go and there might be another best friend to be a reflection and so on. The nemesis who turns out to be a good guy, that can happen as well, but it's done slightly differently. It's not so much that the nemesis has been hiding the fact that he's a good guy as much as he has a change of heart and realizes I'm going after the wrong thing, I gotta help the hero. Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive would be that kind of nemesis. He's in opposition to the hero, but finally he reaches a point where he realizes, I'm going after the wrong guy and I've gotta help him find the truth. So I don't think it's wise to think about characters changing category because it just becomes too complicated and my goal among many others is to make the process as simple as possible. I mean screenwriting is tough enough without making it more complicated than it is. So I like to use these terms for introducing characters and how they're going to function overall and not start switching categories. Forgive me Michael, can you explain real quickly what structural devices, I'm, I'm a little unclear. Um, sure, well, first of all, let's just talk about what structure means. Structure or plot structure simply means the sequence of events. What's the sequence? What happens and when does it happen? So let's say you're writing a script and you know you want a car chase in it. Um, then is it gonna open the movie? Is it gonna be right at the midpoint? Is it gonna be the climax? Gonna be where does it occur? That's that's a structural question. So what we've been talking about extensively is my approach to the overall structure of a story, which are the six stages which are created by those five key turning points. But within each stage, you still have to be smart about what the sequence of events would be. So there are some other tools you can use to do that, some other structural tools you can use that will help you maximize the emotional experience for the audience. So let me give a couple examples. One of those um, would be anticipation. Keep in mind that when we go to the movies, what we like to do is try and guess what's gonna happen next. We're always thinking about, oh, what's gonna happen? And, and, uh, and the movie, you wanna create anticipation in the movie. So if you go see Jaws, Okay. <laughs> this yeah. is now the well, third time this has happened. I'm thinking it. You yeah, say yeah. it. Yeah. Well, Jaws is such a classic <laughs> example of anticipation, but it was sort of because of the necessity of having a broken shark, all they really had was a dorsal fin. But every time we see the dorsal fin, we're anticipating, oh my God, here comes the shark. In fact, this has nothing to do with the screenplay, but John Williams had a lot of anticipation by creating a theme just for the shark, and now all you gotta do is hear da-da-da-da, and everybody in the world knows what those two notes mean, and so that's anticipation. So we love that because we don't wanna just sit there bored and only, only enjoy emotion right when it happens. We wanna think about the conflict to come because emotion grows out of conflict. So that's anticipation. But to create that anticipation, there is another device that's really effective to use, and that's what is known as superior position. Superior position means tell your reader or your audience something that some of the characters in the movie don't know. 
because that lets your audience or your reader anticipate what's going to happen when the people who don't know that this is happening or this exists, who don't know what I know, find out what, ha what, what I know. So the, the classic example of that would be in a suspense thriller. And then that means you go to Alfred Hitchcock, which he talked about this all the time. He had an anecdote he used to say, and that is, if, you have, if you're shooting a film and two people are sitting across a desk, and all at once a bomb that was hidden in the desk goes off and they're blown to bits. He would say, I'm paraphrasing, he said it much more elegantly. He'd say, you could probably squeeze about 60 seconds of emotion out of that because we'd be shocked and surprised and it'd be awful. And then the audience is saying, okay, now what? But he said, suppose the camera cut to the bomb inside the drawer of the desk, and we know it's there, but the two people at the desk don't know. Then you could milk that for 10 minutes because we're thinking, where's the bomb squad? Get out of the room, get out of the room, get out of the room. And because we know that the bomb is there, but the two people at the desk don't know. We have superior position, and with that superior position, we can anticipate what's going to happen. And we're anticipating the horrible violence, and we don't want it to happen, so now we're deeply emotionally involved in that conflict for a much longer period of time. And if you want a more recent example of that, I'm not going to say too much for the sake of those who haven't seen it, but I strongly recommend everybody see Eye in the Sky. And all I will say about that is, for a great example of superior position, we know what's going to happen, but the girl selling bread doesn't know. And that creates tension that lasts in that movie for at least, I would guess, 30 to 45 minutes. Because that whole movie, in a way, is built on that superior position and anticipation of conflict. Um, a third example of a uh, structural device that um, I recommend highly is uh, a ticking clock. That means you always want to build conflict into your story. You can exponentially increase the level of conflict by having whatever the hero is trying to do be a race against time. So again, if you have a thriller, it's like they're rushing to stop the killer before the killer blows up the bomb in the cathedral. Or they're rushing to stop the bad guy before the bad guy kills the kidnapped victim that they're holding hostage. Okay, so there's a lot of examples of it in action movies and thrillers. Also, though, there's a lot of examples of it in romantic comedies. If you look closely at romantic comedies, very often in the last act of the movie, right before the climax, there'll be a scene, what I call the race to the wedding. And you'll see actually the, 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 the pace speeds up. The hero is rushing to get to the love interest. So in Notting Hill, she comes to him and says that famous line, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her and wants to be with him, the Julia Roberts character, and Will, uh, the Hugh Grant character says, no, I have to refuse because I can't have my heart broken again. He's retreating into his identity. So then he goes to his friends and says, did I do the right thing? And all his friends say, yeah, yeah, that's right. It would be a bad idea and so on until his reflection character um, um, Spike 
comes into the room and they all tell him he just broke up with Anna Scott and he turns to Hugh Grant and says, you daft prick, because that's him holding the hero's feet to the fire and saying you're not going with your truth. So what then happens? We know, and Hugh Grant knows, she's about to leave town. And he has no idea how to reach her except she's giving a press conference. So they all jump in this little car and go screaming through the streets of London to get to um, uh, the hotel where the press conference is so he can get there and declare his love for her before she leaves town. So that ticking clock speeds up the momentum, accelerates the pace, raises the level of conflict and puts more puts a greater obstacle for the hero to overcome. And that makes the structure more effective. Michael, I've seen films that have two nemesis working against the hero, but how about two heroes in a film? Is that really done? Well, yeah. It is? That's, okay. that's done and it's perfectly fine. Um, it's uh, primarily done in two kinds of movies. Uh, buddy movies and love stories or romantic comedies. I guess that's three kinds. But if you have two heroes, two protagonists, all that means is that everything I've talked about in this interview about the hero and the hero's six stages and the hero's goal and the hero's arc and so on has to apply to both. So take a movie like Pretty Woman. You have two equal heroes, meaning they equally are the main character. They both drive the story forward. They're on screen an equal amount of time and so on. And they, as is typical in romantic comedies, each of them has two goals. His goal is to put together a deal for this shipping yard or something. And that's why he hires her to pretend to be his girlfriend. And he starts to fall in love with her. So his second goal is to win her love. Her goal is to make 3000 bucks by pretending to be his, his uh, girlfriend until she gets the $3,000. That's her finish line. And she's falling in love with him. So her other goal is to win his love. And so now they're both pursuing a finish line. And at the end, either they'll be together and achieve the goal or they won't be and they'll fail. And then for each of them, there must be those five turning points and you must be able to divide them into those six stages and the turning points will occur very close together. Sometimes the turning points are identical because when they first meet is the opportunity for both of them. And when he hires her, that's the change of plans for both of them and so on. So that works just fine. Sometimes you will have one of those where one of the heroes has an arc and the other one might be fully evolved and already living in their essence. But most of the time, both characters are going to have to grow uh, and transform in parallel simultaneously if you're going to go into the inner journey for those characters. Actually, it's possible to have more than two heroes. You could take a movie like Love Actually or American Graffiti or any one of those sort of ensemble kinds of stories, Crash and so on. They have multiple heroes. A word to the wise, if you're trying to launch a career until you're well established, I generally recommend against using multiple hero stories because no matter how good a job you do, scripts with multiple heroes are hard to read. Because when we meet them on the screen, no one's going to confuse in Crash Sandra Bullock with whoever it is, Don Cheadle, or whoever else might be in it. But it's very easy to confuse a character named Mary with a character named Susan. And we have to keep seven or eight heroes straight just by their names on the page. And it's also very complex because you've got to carry seven different heroes 
through all six stages and, and give them equal time and have them all weave together. That's usually something for later in your career, at least after you've gotten something produced or had some scripts sold, unless you pitch the story and somebody will pay you to do it. But it's, it's a tough kind of script to write just because of the mechanics of it, let alone because of the artistry involved in combining them. But a two-hero story is very commercial and, and is fine to pursue. Does a hero have to be human? Can it be a place? Can it be an animal? I mean, a barring animation, but can it be a place? No. No? Okay. No. It has to be, has to be human. it has to be a character. Mm -hmm. It has to be an entity that, that takes action and, ha and is pursuing some kind of goal. Every character in a movie is going to have some kind of goal they want to pursue. It may not take them all the way to the climax like the heroes is, but it has to be an entity, that, I don't know how to say it better, an entity that takes action. Certainly it can be an animal, Zootopia has Judy Hopps as the hero and she's a bunny or a, a rabbit who's a cop, so that's fine. Um, it can be uh, any kind of anthropomorphic character, it could be a cyborg, uh, you know, iRobot for example, or, or uh, you know, or, uh, or AI, Why, the, yeah. the Spielberg movie or something like that. But it has to be a character. It can't be a place, it can't be a quality, it can't be a collective noun. The hero cannot be the resistance. The hero cannot be, the villain cannot be the Nazis. These are, these are terms that apply to individual characters. The primary goal of every story is to? Elicit emotion. Elicit emotion, okay. And if it's too stale, let's suppose the writer thinks that there's emotion that it's going somewhere but the reader is not getting the emotion that the writer intends where's the breakdown there the the the, the breakdown is definitely with the writer uh -huh. you know it's not it's not an audience's or a reader's job to feel something hmm. that's something you have to elicit so it means you haven't created sufficient conflict in your story to elicit emotion or you haven't created a premise a concept of a story you haven't structured in such a way that that conflict makes any sense or it can be emotionally involving because you've given the reader nothing to root for or you haven't created empathy with the hero or whatever it might be. But it's your job to elicit emotion. The emotion has to come naturally from the reader and audience because of what, they're, what you've done. Um, they have to be participating in the story you've created. That's why, for example, empathy is so important for the hero, for, for you to create for your hero, because a story is a participatory experience for the audience or the listener or the reader. We become that character. We want to experience the emotion as they do. It's not, we don't go to the movies because it's interesting to watch people do things. It's emotional for us to get to do them. We become Jason Bourne. We become Rose as she falls in love with Jack and is on the Titanic. We become um, uh, the woman who, the astronaut who's out in space in gravity. We are a part of it. We're participating in the action and the events of that story. But we have no basis, no way to get into the story if we don't, on a subconscious level, become the hero of that story. And that's what the empathy and identification you create at the beginning is going to do. So if you've created a story with an empathetic hero so we participate, given them a clear goal, and created enough logical, believable obstacles to overcome, then the emotion will grow 
organically out of your audience because they're in it and you've created the conflict that will do that. What about the writer that just puts incident after incident of conflict, but then the story just falls flat? What is it missing? Well, it could be missing any number of things, but as I said earlier, to me, all roads lead to the outer motivation. And so if all you're doing is stringing together obstacles to overcome, and there's a very similar mistake, and that is people who think comedy is one funny thing after another happening. That's not what, that's not what a story is. A story is the sequence of events experienced by a hero who's pursuing a very specific goal. So if you're just throwing one obstacle after another, but we don't care about the hero, or the hero, it's not clear why the hero is doing this, or what they're trying to achieve, or if those obstacles are illogical, or if the pace of the story lags, or if everything is at a very high level of emotion and you're not creating sort of peaks and valleys to the emotional level, so you have big moments and quiet moments, and moments of connection and moments of separation and so on, there are all those things you've got to do in addition to throwing a bunch of, you know, car chases and fight scenes up on the screen, which many people have tried and those movies don't succeed. If, if it's just car chases and fight scenes, it's just, you know, it's just a series of videos really, but it's not a story or a movie that are people are going to be involved in. So there has to be a resting point. It's, it's, you said peaks and valleys, so at some point it has to kind of drop. Well, it has to alternate, yeah. Alternate. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a resting point as if you stay there forever. But you don't, it's like in a comedy, you don't want joke, 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 joke. There's got to be a serious moment or two. And, and look at any great comedy, look at even any decent comedy, and there's going to be something very funny, but then there's going to be something touching or sad or romantic or there's going to be a deeper connection between the characters, or there's going to be something more exciting, or there's going to be something softer. You want to vary the peaks and valleys, the emotional level and, and pitch of the story as we go steadily toward the finish line that the hero is trying to reach. So the obstacles need to get bigger, they need to come closer together as it moves forward so the pace will accelerate, but if there's only obstacles one right after the other with no chance to catch our breath, no chance to anticipate what might be coming, no chance to explain what's going on, and no chance to get closer or deeper into the characters, it's going to be a very, very shallow story with very limited emotional involvement or appeal.